1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice Reply Brief. This week, I'm going to begin breaking down the prosecutor's part nine, but I'm going to break things up into two episodes. Brett and Alice covered both Jay's first and second official police interviews in their episode. But in order to better understand the case, I think each interview deserves its own analysis. And I want to do something a little bit different this week. And mostly I'm talking to Zach. As these episodes hit the main feed, I've asked Zach to first listen to my episode and then listen to the prosecutor's episode that I'm covering. The idea is that he, as an unbiased observer, will know what to be listening for when he hears their analysis. But this week, I'm going to switch things up. And for the rest of you who are listening to both episodes in tandem, I would suggest that you do the same. And there's a good reason for that. As I've stated from the beginning of the series, what really bothers me about Brett and Alice's reporting on Adnan's case is that they somehow managed to convince a lot of well-meaning people, informed people, who genuinely care about truth and justice being served, that they had been wrong for all these years and Adnan is actually guilty. So a lot of people have told me that they finished the prosecutor series and were left believing that he was. And they really couldn't put their finger on how that happened. Well, this is how. If you've made it this far, then you're already aware of the many, many inaccuracies and deceptions in their presentation but Part 9 is of particular concern. Jay Wilde was not just the linchpin of the state's case. He was the state's case. Everything else is just peripheral stuff used to bolster his story. Without Jay's story, there is no case. So his police interviews are obviously of critical importance, and that's why I want Zach and anyone else who wants to join him on the journey to flip-flop the order today. I want to see how someone who really doesn't know the case reacts to their episode, and then I want them to come back to this episode and find out what just happened over on Brett and Alice's feed. So, Zach, right now I want you to press pause, go listen to The Prosecutor's Part 9, at least the first half of it, inventory your thoughts, and then come back and play the rest of this episode. And I'll see you on the other side. Welcome back, Zach. If my thesis is correct, right now you're probably thinking that at the very least, Adnan might be guilty. And the reason why is because this episode of Brett and Alice's, quote, fact-based, unbiased investigation is absolutely reprehensible. As I walk through Jay's first official interview and how they cover it, you're going to see how in a few cases they simply change the facts and the record to suit their narrative. In many cases, they completely ignore and refuse to report the things Jay said. And they spend about a third of the episode trying to convince you that Jay's telling the truth. The only word I can think to accurately describe this episode is it's gross. It's just really gross what they did here. And I'm about to show you why. Let's get started. I think the best way to tackle this is to follow the prosecutor's lead. I'm going to point out both the things they misrepresented and the things they left out of the statement along the way. An important thing to remember in the way of foundation before we begin is that Brett and Alice approached this episode from the perspective that this interview on February 28th is the first time Jay has ever spoken to the police. Now, from my perspective, as you all know, that's just simply not the case. I broke all this down in the last episode, but to briefly summarize, Jay's boss said the police picked him up from work and took him to the station to be questioned about Hayes' murder twice before this. Jay's friend Ernest said that he saw Jay talking to the police in a car before this interview. The detectives knew they were looking for Jen and asked for her by name when they approached her house, even though the phone was in her father's name. Jen said that based on the questions the police were asking her in her first unrecorded interview, she felt like they had already talked to someone else before her. McGillivary wrote that Jen told him the location of Hay's car in his report, even though it's clear in the recording and the transcript, that she didn't have any idea where the car was. That information did not come from her. And lastly, Jay himself in a later interview said that the police were constantly chasing him around and questioning him about the murder to the point of harassment before they ever spoke with Jen. So you can believe what you want. I just think it needs to be noted that one of the first things that Brett and Alice do to convince you that Jay is telling a basic story rooted in truth is to make the point that this is his first contact with police. Right from the beginning, they tell you that they want to give you the facts regarding Jay's interview and let you figure things out on your own. This is pretty much par for the course in their series. They almost always start out by first disarming you. Hey, we're not going to push our thoughts on you. We're just going to share the facts. Which would be just fine if they actually shared the facts. And also, if they shared all the facts. But Brett also says right up front that they're not going to read the transcript to you like they did with Jen. They're just going to summarize it. Which, after listening to the entire episode, I translate to, we're only going to share the parts of the interview that support our narrative and ignore the rest. So here we go. The first thing that Brett said actually flipped a light switch on my head, something I'd never thought of before. He says that on the 27th of February, the police interviewed Jen and then almost immediately go to the store where Jay works and pick him up to be interviewed. What had never occurred to me before is if Jen was the first person interviewed and they only found out about Jay through Jen, then how do they know where Jay worked? I just reviewed Jen's statement again, and she never says where Jay works. McGillivary, in her interview, does a good job of at least acting like he doesn't know who Jay is. What's his last name? Is he a white guy or a black guy? He asks questions like that, but what he doesn't do is ask where Jay works. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I just did about 15 different keyword searches in Jen's interview, and there's nothing about the adult video store ever brought up. So then how would McGillivary then know to go right to Jay's work to pick him up that night? Just something to keep in mind as we move along. Okay, so the episode starts out by saying that on the day of Hayes' murder, Adnan picked Jay up so they could buy a gift for Stephanie. They really breeze by the beginning of the interview, but I think it's important to break down what Jay actually said. It seems very obvious to me that Jay has already been shown the cell phone records at this point. He's asked what he can tell the detectives about the murder, and he immediately blurts out an entire series of events that lines up with the beginning of the cell phone record. Remember, we have a call in the log where Adnan called Jay the night before he was killed. So this is the first thing Jay says after agreeing to answer questions. Now, Jay's birthday was January 12th, for reference. Quote, On my birthday, on the evening of my birthday, um, Adnan called me and we chatted and uh, we made plans for the next day evening. That morning, he called me and we took we were going to the mall. He asked if I could do him a favor. End quote. This is the first red flag that jumped out at me right from the start. The call log shows a call from Adnan to Jay that evening, and Jay is right away building a story around the cell records. The problem is that the call he's referring to was eighteen seconds long, including the ring time. But according to Jay, on that call, they, quote, chatted, uh, we made plans for the next day evening, end quote. So when doing a statement analysis, particularly when you suspect a false confession, the first thing that you should be looking for is, of course, anything that's provably false, like saying you had an entire conversation where you made plans for the next day in 18 seconds, as well as information that could have come from the detectives. In fact, that's the most important thing you should be listening for in any interview. What did the suspect tell the detectives that they didn't already know? In this case, going into the interview, Rita McGillivary knew about what time Hay went missing. They knew where she was buried. They knew how she was positioned when she was buried. They knew what the burial site and surrounding area looked like. They knew she had been strangled and hit on the head. They knew there were red fibers found in the grave, and they had Adnan's cell phone records. So, in general, what we should be looking for is information from Jay that couldn't have come from the detectives. But more specifically, in this instance, we see information that looks like it was at least influenced by what the detectives already knew. Adnan called Jay the night before, so Jay's story begins with Adnan calling him that evening. But Jay has to give a reason why. So, there was a conversation where they made plans. That's strike one in my book. Right off the bat, that conversation could not have happened in those 18 seconds. And that's the very first paragraph out of Jay's mouth. Followed by this in regards to Jay saying that Adnan called him again on the morning of the murder. Quote, Ritz, can you recall what time he called your house, Jay? Jay, um, a little after 10, about 10.45, quarter to 11. End quote. Amazing. Six weeks after the fact, Adnan called Jay at 10.45. And a quick look at the phone records, and would you look at that, the log shows Adnan calling him at exactly 10.45. Now, this should present a pretty serious issue for the guilty crowd. If you're going to make the argument that Jay has total recall about these two phone calls, and the information didn't come from Ritz and McGillivary showing him the call log, then you now have to explain why when he insists that the come-and-get-me call didn't happen until after 3.40, he must have misremembered that one. In my opinion, in the first two paragraphs of this transcript, Jay has already exposed the detectives. He already seems to be attempting to fit his narrative to the data they already have and have already showed him. It's pretty easy to make the leap from showing Jay the call log to them showing him crime scene photos. And things fall apart and get a little wonky later on as he goes with his interview. But when you go to their website and you read the transcript, you'll see that all of this just gets blurted out. This first part of it where he's hitting the times and the log and everything. It's just, hey, is there anything you could tell us about this murder? And Jay's like, yeah, bah, 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 bah. And he starts hitting bullet points. Once the conversation gets going, then he really starts to lose track of the phone records and everything else. Moving on, Brett and Alice say that Jay is explaining that Adnan picked him up to go shop for a birthday gift for Stephanie, but that's not actually what Jay says. He says that Adnan picked him up and they went to the mall to do some shopping. The first mention of Stephanie comes a few lines later, where Jay is explaining how Adnan got to talking about how Hay broke his heart. Quote, Ritz, the conversation where Adnan tells you he's going to kill Hay, where does that conversation take place? Jay, in his car. It started off talking about girls and Stephanie's birthday was coming up, you know. We've inaudible this and that and the other. I can't like, I can't believe what Hay did to me broke my heart like that. End quote. See, little details like this are important. So Hay was killed on Stephanie's birthday. It's a pretty solid anchor. But the way Jay remembers it during this conversation, where Adnan's saying that Hay broke his heart, and he's saying this all happened on the day of the murder, look at what he says, quote, Steph's birthday was coming up, end quote. The thing about a lie is that they oftentimes are rooted in some truth. Now, personally, I doubt any high school boy is going to tell his buddy that his heart was broken like that. But I wouldn't doubt that Jay and Adnan had a conversation about the breakup. The question is, when? The day Hay was killed? It becomes that day at some point, but if you listen closely to what Jay is saying, Steph's birthday was coming up. I'd be willing to bet that this conversation happened well before Hay was killed. And as I'm sure you can guess, I sincerely doubt that conversation ended with Adnan saying that he was going to kill Hay. Anyway, look at what Jay says. He first says Adnan said he was going to kill Hay, but when he walks through the details, Adnan doesn't say he's going to kill her. He actually recounts that conversation a couple times, and he consistently quotes Adnan saying that Hay broke his heart, but he never quotes him saying that he's going to kill Hay, until Ritz asks him specifically to tell him Adnan's exact words. Then Jay said that Adnan said, quote, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill that bitch, end quote. So moving on, Jay says after shopping for a while, he drops Adnan off at school at around 1230, And then he goes to his friend Mark Pusateri's house, Jen's brother. He says they played video games, just the two of them, and when Jen got off work, she joined them. Jay says that he's playing a waiting game, that Adnan had told him that he'd call around 3 o'clock. Adnan had told him that Jay needs to pick him up somewhere, but the call doesn't actually come in until 3.45. Jay screws this up, and it's one of the things that needs fixing in the second interview. There are no incoming calls at any time on or around 345, but that gets patched up later. So Jay says that Adnan called and told him to pick him up from a strip on Edmondson Avenue. And then here, Alice spends a few minutes trying to patch up this massive inconsistency. So, Janet just told McGillivary that Jay told her that he met Adnan the trunk pop happened at Best Buy. But Jay is saying it happened on a strip on Edmondson Avenue. So here's how Alice tries to explain this away. So Remember a few weeks ago when I told you that Jay said that he had told a guy named Chris about the murder? Chris was interviewed on Serial years later and said that Jay had told him that he and Adnan were shooting pool at a pool hall that afternoon when suddenly Adnan told him to go outside and look in his trunk. and That's where Jay saw Hay's body. Now, us mere mortals might see that as another huge problem. That's now a third location for the trunk pop. But Alice uses Chris's story as a way to bolster Jay's story. It's a pretty wild ride if you haven't listened to it yet. So here's how she band-aids this story together. Chris said the trunk pop happened at a pool hall. There are a handful of pool halls on Edmondson Avenue. She says those pool halls are near Patapsco State Park. They're nowhere near it, by the way. Other side of town. And the Edmonton Avenue Strip is also near Patapsco. Also not true, by the way. But therefore, we can connect Jay's story about smoking weed at the cliffs at Patapsco to the pool hall, to the drug strip, and all is right with the world. She says this actually makes some sense. Now there's the minor issue, the cell phone pings being nowhere near any of these locations. But she says that could just be an anomaly, and the phone could have connected to the wrong tower. Although, to be fair, she says that part is just speculation. So there's a big, heaping, healthy helping of confirmation bias sandwich for you. Jay tells an impossible story that doesn't match Jen's impossible story or Chris's ridiculous story, and instead of admitting that's a problem, Alice finds a way to make it somehow all work. And for any of you that have excused Brett and Alice for getting all of this stuff wrong by saying that they just didn't do much research and didn't do a deep dive, that's not their job, go back and listen to Alice explaining how many pool halls exactly there are on Edmondson Avenue. That's not simple stuff that's in the case file. In order to make this argument she just made, they had to go in and research How many pool halls existed in 1999 on a particular street in Baltimore? It's a pretty incredible level of research.
0: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com
0: and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Next up, Jay says that it takes 20 minutes to drive to the Strip to pick Adnan up. Now listen to this exchange and you tell me if Jay is actually recalling what he experienced or if Ritz is prompting him to tell a story he rehearsed. Quote, Ritz. You arrive 20 minutes later at this location on Edmondson Avenue. Then what happens? J Um, I drove, I followed him to, I followed him out into, and then Ritz interrupts him, cuts him off, and says, Do you get out of your car when you get on Edmondson Avenue and have any conversation with him? J. Uh-huh, yeah. Ritz, tell me about that. Jay, um, we get out, oh, and we, he's walking around with red gloves on. Um, Ritz interrupts again. What kind of red gloves are they? Jay, regular winter gloves. End quote. Now try to analyze that from an unbiased perspective. What did you hear? Ritz asks Jay what happened when he arrived. Jay is stumbling through saying that he followed Adnan somewhere, and Ritz cuts him off, interrupts him. He doesn't want him to say that he drives away. He needs him to mention the red gloves and ultimately the trunk pop. If Ritz was looking for Jay's truthful story, he would have let him go on. But that's not what happens. As soon as Jay's story starts to get to the point where they're going to drive away and he hasn't hit the bullet points that supposedly Ritz doesn't already know, Ritz stops him, doesn't let him even finish his sentence. Did you get out of the car and have a conversation? And with Ritz's prompting, we get some new information. Adnan was wearing red winter gloves. Pretty odd, right? It's a warm day. Adnan had supposedly called Jay 20 minutes prior. That would have had to have been from a payphone. So I'm wondering if he dug in his pockets, found change, and dialed the numbers with winter gloves on. Or did he put them back on after the phone call? Neither option seems reasonable to me. But what we do know is that Ritz knew there were red fibers in the grave. So where do you think the red glove detail came from? From the guy that was breezing past this entire interaction? Or from the guy who interrupted him, who knew there were red fibers in the grave, and made sure Jay stopped and talked about an interaction with Adnan before he said they drove away? Then there's this. Quote, yeah, they're like wool, uh, leather palms, and uh, that sparked, you know, what the fuck you walking around with gloves on for? And then, I'm sorry, um, then he goes, I did it. I did it. You don't fucking believe me? I did it. He pops the trunk open, and he's like, she's all blue up in there, inaudible, in the trunk. End quote. The first thing that jumped out to me in this paragraph is Jay apologizing. What's he apologizing for? This is where some people may call me a conspiracy theorist. But I'm sorry, this reads like somehow or another, Ritz is indicating to Jay that he missed something. He missed saying that Adnan said he did it. He's going on about the gloves and then, quote, I'm sorry. Um, Then he goes, I did it. I did it. You don't fucking believe me? I did it. Then he pops the trunk. So when you're doing a statement analysis, you have to pay attention to every word. Every word means something. I'm sorry. Why is Jay sorry? You have to decide for yourself, but I don't read anything he's saying that warrants an apology. He's reacting to something. Mid-sentence that sparked him to go from, What the fuck are you walking around with gloves on for? And then, I'm sorry, um... And then he goes, I did it. So Jay goes on to share more information that the detectives already knew. He perfectly describes exactly what Hay was wearing when she was found, right down to the stockings. Pretty observant. And again, it's almost like Ritz knows that Jay has the right answer. He asks Jay what Hay was wearing, and Jay nails it. Then he asks if she was wearing shoes, and Jay says no. So depending on your point of view, Jay is either incredibly observant and has a great memory, or he was looking at a picture of Hay's body when he shared those details. And while you're contemplating which you believe, and you're welcome to believe either one, don't forget that he can't remember where he was when he saw her body. The Strip, Best Buy, a pool hall, and one conversation is at Patapsco State Park, his grandma's house. So if you think this information came from Jay and not Ritz, you're gonna to have to square that with him not remembering where the fuck he was, but remembering every detail about what Hay was wearing. And listen to this very detailed account of what happened next. Ritz. After he shows you her body in the trunk and tells you that he finally did it, then what happened? Jay. We argued for like uh about five minutes on the corner, and uh we start drawing attention, arguing, so he's like Get in the car, follow me. So I get in the car and I follow him, and we end up at the Route 70 park and ride off of, uh, what is that, Uh, Cook's Lane? End quote. First of all, remember all this when you think back to the Nisha call. Brett and Alice, of course, don't share any of these details. But Jay says the call didn't come till 345, which is impossible. So we shift back to 315 because there has to be a call, and that's the only one that's close. Then he says it was a 20-minute drive to get Adnan. Then the conversation and trunk pop. Then a five-minute argument before they finally drive to the park and ride. So even if we use the 315 call, which doesn't fit the story at all, and just the two times Jay gives, 20 minutes and five minutes, that means based on the actual evidence, they didn't even leave the murder scene until 340. Then he had to drive to the park and ride, move stuff around, ditch the car. Adnan gets into his car then drive all the way over to the other side of town to hit the tower that they supposedly used to call Nisha on at 3.32 p.m., eight minutes before they ever left the Trunk Pop location to begin with. But just reading the statement, Jay's giving a detailed account of them arguing on the corner and drawing attention to themselves. So it's pretty amazing that in his next interview, they weren't on a corner at all. They were in the Best Buy parking lot there was no one around, no argument, and no one to have their attention drawn by. And it's at this point in the prosecutor's episode that we get Brett's standard, well, yeah, this seems like a problem, but really this case is, quote, complicated in the way that every case is complicated, end quote. As you've learned, one of the main plays in their playbook is to constantly try to convince you that everything happening in this case is normal. You only think it's a problem that Jay changes his story over and over again, and none of them ever fit with the evidence, because you're just not a lawyer. You're not an expert like them. You've never been in a courtroom. You're an outsider, so trust him. If you're a lawyer that tries cases, then you know that this is all perfectly normal. This section of the episode paints the perfect picture of how Brett and Alice operate. They put a lot of focus on Jay knowing what Hay was wearing. They touch on the changed trunk pop location, but then immediately tag-team that problem. First, Alice talks about Jay's friend Chris and Patapsco State Park and the pool hall and the possible wrong cell tower, trying to frame it as a possible truth. Then Brett tags in and gives a standard, this is all perfectly normal. It's not out of the ordinary at all. Trust us, we're lawyers. We know what we're talking about. Then he circles right back to Jade, knowing what Hay was wearing, He and Alice both call that, quote, really significant, and then comes an aside, usually sprinkled with a lie or two. And that's exactly what happens here. Brett straight up tells you that Jay changing these details is not something to be concerned about. And then Alice tags in to let you know not to be distracted by the trunk pop change. Instead, remember that Adnan gave Jay his car and phone that day, and that is no coincidence. That's the aside, and here's the lie. She says that's not normal and, quote, it seems like it was a one-time thing that Adnan gave Jay his car and phone. So the idea is that by the time they spend five minutes distracting you, you'll be focused on two things. Jay knew what he was wearing, and Adnan only ever gave Jay his car and phone one time. But as I said, that's not true. We can see the pattern on Adnan's cell phone records. Just in the six weeks that he had the phone, we see other occasions where the phone is calling people only Jay knows. One instance I talked about a few weeks ago was January twenty-seven, another Wednesday, where we see an almost identical sequence of calls during track practice. Calls to Jen, calls to Christy, calls to Patrick the weed dealer. We also can't forget Adnan's teammate who said there's no way he could say if Jay picked Adnan up from track practice on the day of the murder because that was a very common occurrence. Adnan, on many occasions, would give Jay his car while he was at practice. And this is all stuff Alice knows, but she's still trying to convince you that it was a one-time thing. There's an even more obvious intentional lie coming up in a few minutes, but for now, let's continue with Jay's story. He says that he and Adnan leave the strip on Edmondson and go drop off Hay's car at the park and ride. Here, Jay specifically says that Adnan doesn't remove anything from her car. Quote, no, no, nothing, just gets in the car, end quote. This is another problem because at some point Adnan has to show up to track practice dressed for practice with his school and gym bag, which would have been in Hay's car in this world, and he just left it behind. Another detail that gets fixed later. So Jay says after dropping the car off, he and Adnan drive to the cliffs at Patapsco State Park where they smoke a blunt. He says they're there for about 30 minutes. I want to point out part of the statement to you, mostly so you can understand how I do statement analysis. People love to come at me with these knee-jerk reactions because I'm saying something that doesn't fit their preconceived ideas. What I'm trying to show you is that it's fine to disagree, but I'm not pulling this stuff out of my ass. There's a reason for how I form my opinions, and here's an example. Ritz starts asking Jay if Adnan was high when he met him for the trunk pop. Jay says that Adnan had a thousand-yard stare. Then, listen carefully to this exchange. Ritz. Was he talking out of his head, saying there's Martians coming out to get him or anything? Jay. No, he wasn't. Pause. He was probably cool, calm, and collected. End quote. What word did you notice that shouldn't have been there? Probably. He was probably... Calm, cool, and collected. Words come from thoughts and word choices matter. If Jay was recalling a real experience, what I would expect to hear would be something like, no, he seemed cool, calm, and collected. But instead he says he was probably calm, cool, and collected. He's speaking of a hypothetical scenario, not remembering what he observed. Back to it. Jay says that after smoking the blunt, he takes Adnan back to school. He does not say to track practice. He just says he takes him back to school. The whole took him to track practice to be seen for an alibi doesn't come until a later interview. Jay says the sun was going down at this point. He figures it was probably about 4.30 when they left the park. Now, if you're doing the math, there are a lot of problems with that. The call comes in at 3:45. 20-minute drive, five-minute argument. Drive to the park and ride. Drive to Patapsco. 30 minutes to get high. That's already pushing 5:30. That's already pushing 5:30. And sunset was at 5:08. It was dark at 5:30. And on the flip side, around 4:30 is nearly 40 minutes before sunset. Hardly watching the sun go down. Any way you shake it, none of this makes sense or is even possible. Add to that, at the earliest, he and Adnan are leaving the cliffs at 4:30 which would put Adnan back at track practice around 4.50. And Coach Sy says he was talking to Adnan while he was stretching, which happens at the beginning of practice, and he says he was there on time, which is either 3.30 or 4 o'clock or somewhere in between at the latest. So none of this works. It's a fairy tale. Now, as Brett explains the next part, he makes it seem a lot more seamless than it actually was. Brett says Jay next claims to have picked Adnan up from track practice at 6.45. Then he takes Adnan to McDonald's to eat to break his fast. Then while eating, Adnan gets a call from police, so they go back to the park and ride to pick up Hay's car and body. All of this is nonsense anyway. Practice was over at 5.30, and if he picked Adnan up at 6.45, then went to eat, then got the car, there's no way they were burying Hay at 7.09 in Leakin Park. Plus, the call log doesn't match any of this, but don't worry, they're going to try to fix all that in a couple weeks when Jay records another interview. But even that nonsense story isn't how Jay actually related. He actually says that he was at home when Adnan called him at 6.45. Then he says that he picked Adnan up at school, and then he immediately went to the park and ride. But then he corrects himself. Quote, no wait, before that happened, we were, we were eating and a police officer called him on the phone, and then we cut the meal short because we got to go back to the park and ride. End quote. Next, we get what could be corroborating information, but it's again information that Ritz already knew. Jay says the police officer told Adnan that Hay didn't pick up her cousin. Still, we're looking for something new that Jay shares that couldn't have come from the police, and we haven't yet heard that. As Jay goes on, he says that Adnan is talking to the police for around 15 minutes, and then he changes them leaving McDonald's and going to the park and ride. To leaving and going back to Jay's house to pick up a pick and a shovel. Then they go to the park and ride. Adnan gets in Hay's car and tells Jay to follow him. He says Adnan drove him all around town and they eventually end up in Leakin Park. The timing continues to get worse in this statement. Jay says that Adnan finds a spot and tells Jay to go park around the corner and that he'll be back. Jay then waits another 10 to 15 minutes for Adnan to return. He says when Adnan walked up the street to Jay, He says Hay was heavy. But again, there's more to this. Also, Brett doesn't mention any of these details, none of them. They don't fit with the basic story, so he leaves them out. But when you read the transcript, you see Jay screwing things up again. And Ritz interrupts him and gets him to go back to say what he needs him to say. Jay says Adnan comes walking up the street and he picks him up. That's when Ritz cuts him off and he asks what Adnan said to him. And that's when Jay backs up and says Adnan told him the body was heavy. He now says Adnan told him to drive him back to where he had dumped Hay's body because he needs to bury her. Another five-minute argument ensues, and then we get a perfect description of not only the crime scene photos, but also the videos shown on the news when Hay's body was found. In those videos and crime scene photos, we see the police cars parked next to a jersey barrier at the crime scene. And just like before, Ritz asks Jay to describe where he parked, and he, of course, describes the Jersey barrier. But again, Jay messes it up. He gives too much detail. He says there are, quote, a couple of wood posts, and there's snow on the ground. First of all, it would have been pitch black at this point, and secondly, there was no snow on the ground on the evening of January 13th. There was none. We did a ton of research on this back during Season 1. We found news reports from that day and checked the extended weather history. There was no snow. Now, for Brett and Alice defenders out there, I want you to read the transcript and then listen to how Brett describes all of this. He says they park, Adnan carries Hay's body into the woods, and Jay stays behind because he doesn't want to help with the burial. Then Adnan comes back and jokes that Hay's body was heavy, they argue, and they go back into the woods and bury the body. But that's not at all what Jay described. Brett pretends like the driving around the corner, Adnan thinking that Jay left him, Adnan walking down the road, the 15-minute wait. None of that ever happened. He completely changes the narrative that Jay gave to something that sounds more reasonable. And tries to make Jay look like a better human. Like Jay is conflicted and so he stays in the car and doesn't help carry hay. But just know this. None of that's what Jay actually said. You can read it in the transcripts. I encourage you to read the transcript. There are receipts for all of this, and this is the transcript that Brett is working off of. Moving on, Jay says that when he gets into the woods, Hay's body is leaning against a log. Adnan asks him to help dig. He says that he and Adnan argued again, and then, quote, I started digging a hole. Now, later, he says that only Adnan dug the hole. Amidst all of this, he says that Adnan is repeatedly vomiting, And he also describes a blue jacket that he saw on the way to the burial site in the woods. In this interview, he says it was Hayes' jacket. Later, he'll say that Adnan took his jacket off and threw it into the woods. But the reality is, again, there's just a random blue jacket in the woods in the crime scene photos. More information that the police already knew that Jay incorporates into his story. As the interview goes on, it's actually Ritz who switches the digger from Jay to Adnan. Jay had said that he himself was the one digging the hole, but then a couple minutes later, Ritz says, quote, when he, Adnan, is digging a hole, describe for me how deep a hole he digs, end quote. Jay definitely picks up on what Ritz is putting down here and later changes his story to the fact that he wasn't digging at all, only Adnan was. But remember, when he first told the story in this interview, Jay said that he himself was the one digging. He describes the crime scene and how Hay's body was positioned in the grave, all information that the police already knew and had photos of. But again, Jay screws up here. He knows that the murder happened back in January, so again he says there's snow on the ground. And again, there was no snow. Seems like if Ritz is prompting him with this story, he didn't do his research. The ice storm came in later that night, in the middle of the night. It seems obvious to us now because a lot of us have been so deep in the weeds in this case for years, but at the time, in real time, it doesn't appear that the detectives took the time to check on the weather on that unseasonably warm week in January. Remember, Ritz and McGillivary weren't involved and knew nothing about this case until a month later when Hayes' body was found in Baltimore City. Prior to that, it was a county case. This is one of the biggest holes in the state's case, and sadly, nobody caught it back in 99. The narrative revolves around snow being on the ground, and there was no snow. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Auto Parts (laughs) Alice makes another pretty wild claim as they move on and talk about Hay's shoes. So Jay says that Hay wasn't wearing her shoes and that Adnan left them in the car. Again, something the police already knew. But then Alice points out that in the recent vacation of Adnan's conviction, DNA evidence was found on those shoes, and that played a role. There was unknown DNA found on Hay's shoes that didn't match Hay, Adnan, or Jay. But here's the wild part. Alice says that finding someone else's DNA on the shoes would be consistent with Adnan handling them with the red gloves on. Let's figure that one out. Adnan's wearing red gloves, and therefore it makes perfect sense for a completely different person's DNA to be present on the shoes. This is more of that sleight of hand. They speak with authority, expertise, and confidence, with the hope that you'll just accept what they say as fact. Well, the prosecutor Alice says this fits with Jay's story and Adnan being guilty, so it must. When in reality, unknown DNA on the shoe points in the complete opposite direction. And both of them are good at this, but Alice is really the master of deception. She puts Brett to shame. Right after this, she talks about Jay describing the lighting at the scene. So what Jay actually says is that it's dark, but because of the snow on the ground, he could see just fine. He said it wasn't bright enough to read a book, but he could count change in his hand. So the glaring falsehood there is that there was no snow on the ground. The rest is just semantics. But when Alice recounts this, she makes no mention of the snow. Instead, she focuses on the analogy and tells you how Jay saying that he couldn't read a book but could count change rings very true to her. She doesn't explain away the snow bit here. She just doesn't tell you that he said it at all. Ignore the bad and focus on the helpful parts. Then Brett comes in with the expertise, the one-two punch. He talks about all their experience in trying to detect lies from a transcript. He talks about how even FBI agents they work with can't do it. So you definitely shouldn't think you're qualified to determine if Jay is lying. Then comes the aside. This time, he's comparing Jay to Brad Pitt and Edward Norton in Fight Club. Per their usual MO, they bob and weave their way through the problematic part of the case document. They breeze by the problems and put focus on the less problematic parts. Then they remind you of their expertise. They tell you that it's actually easy to see this isn't a problem. Then, an aside, sprinkle in a couple lies, and voila, the problem is gone. A good drinking game would be to take a shot every time one of them says that something Jay said, quote, would be consistent. Just make sure you drink your Z-biotics first. Next, Jay describes the dumping of Hay's car. He says they drive around for a while, looking for a spot. They go to a drug strip first, but Adnan doesn't like that spot. Now, Brett says strip club, but Jay actually says a strip, which is an area where you buy drugs. It's not a strip club called Belvedere's. It's a strip in Belvedere. Then they go to a spot off Edmonton Avenue and park the car. At that point, Ritz says, after he parks the car, then what happens? And Jay says, he moves it. Pause. He didn't like that spot, so he moves to another spot. Now, you can interpret that in a lot of ways. It's really hard to tell, but you know that I'm skeptical about all of this, and we've already seen instances where Ritz has changed Jay's story for him. So one way to look at it is that Ritz might have somehow indicated to Jay that that's not the right spot, wrong area of town. So when Ritz says what happens, Jay says he moved it. Then a mumble, a long pause, and he didn't like that spot. Jay never does give a detailed location for where they eventually left the car. Interestingly enough, though, he describes the area. What you could see, say, from a picture. It's in a parking area behind some row homes. As far as where, all we get is that it's somewhere on the west side of Baltimore City, not in the county. Now, this is where Ritz could have got some actual new information from Jay, if he didn't already know where the car was. The car was supposedly the most important piece of missing information in this case. You would think that we would see some follow-up questions about the location. What street was it off of? What's near there, etc. But Ritz leaves it at somewhere on the west side of Baltimore. And remember Jay's trial testimony. He said that when they went out to find the car that night, that he led them to the wrong place. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this, even though I really want to. Because the truth is, it's unprovable. There's plenty of evidence that Jay didn't know where that car was. He never said where it was. There are no notes of him talking about the location of the car in the pre-interview. Ritz never asked him specifically where it was. But those who think Adnan is guilty are always going to say Jay led the police to the car. And those that think that Adnan is innocent will always point to all of this and say the police knew where the car was and Jay didn't. Neither side is ever going to yield on this point, so it's a wasted effort. It's unprovable. Which is why my focus is on the provable elements. The call log, the statements on the record, drive times, etc. Adnan is easily and provably alibied. No version or combination of versions of J-Stories are even remotely possible when compared to the call logs and drive times. So it's not worth arguing about the car. What I will say is this the detectives did not prove in any way that Jay knew where that car was. Also, one of the residents who lives right across the alley from where Hayes' car was located was unequivocal when interviewed in the HBO doc. She says that there is absolutely no chance that the car was abandoned there for six weeks. If you want to ignore all that to make your narrative work, feel free. Anyway, back to Jay's statement. After he says they dropped the car off in some parking area behind some row home somewhere in West Baltimore, Jay says he drives Adnan's car back to his, Jay's, house. And on the way there, Adnan tells Jay to stop at the Westview Mall and Adnan throws all of Hay's stuff into a dumpster. He says they argued some more and then they went to 7-Eleven. Ritz kind of derails him here and asks if Jay ever returned to where Adnan parked Hay's car. Jay says he did on his commute. Jay didn't own a car, by the way. He had to get rides everywhere. Also, the car was found on the other side of town from his house. And both places that Jay worked during this time were on the southwest quadrant of the map very close to his house, and walking distance. That's F&M in the southwest adult video store. The car was found in the northeast quadrant of the map, completely on the other side. More of that silly statement analysis stuff. People like to take for granted that Jay said he would drive by the car, but no one ever talks about the fact that Jay didn't drive and the location was most definitely not part of his commute. So when I see something like that, now I want to know why he said it. What's the utility? And in my opinion, the answer seems obvious. Ritz is trying to get on the record that the car hasn't been moved. The first thing Ritz does is confirm the jurisdiction of the car. He doesn't ask Jay for a street name or a landmark close by, nothing like that. Instead, he asks him if the car was in Baltimore County or Baltimore City, which feels like a weird question. I don't live there, so I don't know, but I've driven through this whole area, and there's definitely not some obvious landmark to let you know that you've left the county limits and entered the city limits. But Jay knows right away that it's in the city, the west side of Baltimore City. And in fact, the car was found less than a half mile from the dividing line. Woodlawn, the high school, and even right on the edge of Leakin Park, is in the county. The park and ride is right on the line, but Jay seems to know his geography. And the second thing that Ritz does is ask Jay if he's driven by the car to see if it was still there. Jay says that he has, but in an interesting way. Quote, I was, pause, during the commute I made an effort. Yeah, out of my way to see if it was still there. Yeah, it was. End quote. Now, Ritz isn't talking here, but Jay still seems to be responding to him as he's speaking. I was, then a pause like he's considering or getting some kind of instruction. Then, during the commute, I made an effort. Then he changes course again and seems to be responding to something. Yeah, out of my way to see if it was still there. Why is Jay saying, yeah? Who's he saying yeah to? Then lastly, Ritz asks when the last time Jave drove by and saw Hay's car, and Jay very specifically says, quote, four days ago, so the 24th, end quote. So this could be a bunch of reading tea leaves, but to me this seems like an effort to establish that the car was there the whole time. Was the car in the city or the county? Did you drive by to see it? And when was the last time you saw it? Oh, four days ago? great, so obviously we couldn't have moved it a few hours ago. Now, to be clear, I'm just speculating there. I explained in an earlier episode why I think it's possible that they found the car somewhere else and moved it on that very day. It very well could be that bias in me that's reading into this weird string of questions in the middle of Jay trying to finish his story. No follow-ups on where specifically the car is located, but we're definitely going to get on the record that Jay knows where it is and it's been there the whole time. Then here's another weird exchange. Ritz is asking about how many times Jay and Adnan spoke after the murders. Jay says about a dozen, probably half before Hayes' body was found and half after. Then listen to this. Ritz, other than him making light of the situation, laughing about it, what else, what was the context of the other conversation? Jay, um, if I knew where he could get weed, um, and then Ritz cuts him off and interrupts him again. Any conversations pertaining to, and then Jay jumps back in. Oh, about new, he knew I'm involved in it. It's too late, um, uh, references to the fact that he could get at my girlfriend, end quote. Now, maybe it's just me, but it sure seems like Ritz is checking boxes, making sure Jay gets certain bullet points on the record. And then we get a slip up by Jay. Ritz asks what he and Adnan talked about in their most recent conversation. Jay says it was yesterday or the day before, so before the police talked to Jen. Jay says that he contacted Adnan because, quote, I had learned that you guys were looking for me, end quote. And Ritz cuts him off and interrupts him immediately and asks how he learned that. Here's Jay's response, quote, A lot of people told me. Friends of mine told me that you guys wanted to question me, and so I went to him and I said, you know, what the fuck did you get me wrapped up in? He just told me, calm down, everything will be okay, end quote. Isn't it interesting that McGillivary acted like he had no idea who Jay was earlier on this same day, just before this interview, when he was interviewing Jen, but Jay says that he had heard a day or two before that Ritz and McGillivary were looking for him and wanted to question him. Hmm. Then the end of the interview, in my opinion, gets really ridiculous, more so than the rest of it. Ritz starts to tell Jay he's going to wrap up the interview unless there's anything Jay wants to add. Then the tape is about to run out, so they turn off the recorder for a minute. When they turn it back on, Jay just hits some important bullet points. Adnan wanted Jay to revisit the body with him. Adnan said Hay was trying to say something when he was strangling her. It's the first mention we get of him strangling her, by the way. And followed right behind that sentence, quote, um, He told me that she kicked, like, uh, knocked off the uh windshield wiper thing in the car, and that was it, end quote. Phew, good thing Jay suddenly remembered that. It turned out to be a solid piece of evidence at trial. Since Hay's windshield wiper lever was broken, perfect corroboration, except not at all. It certainly looked like it was broken if you had just visually examined the car and snapped a picture of it, which the detectives did at some point but it was actually sent out for testing at one point determined that the wiper wasn't broken at all. It was just removed. You remove it by pulling it straight out. Not something you can do by kicking it. If you listen to Undisclosed, they dug pretty deep into this issue. Colin Miller theorized that someone was attempting to hotwire the car. The plate covering the keyhole where the wires are where you would hotwire was removed and the wiper lever, which was in the way, was pulled out but not broken. And again, as part of a good statement analysis, when you find things like this, you need to try to source the mistake. Why would someone say the lever was kicked off and broken when it was actually pulled straight out to be removed? Would Adnan pull the lever out and then make up that story? Seems unlikely to me. So then how could you make sense of this mistake? Well, to me, it makes sense if Ritz had already examined the car and thought the lever was broken. At the end of the interview, Jay is asked if he ever told anyone about the murder. He says he told Jen about it on the night of. He says they were driving around somewhere when he told her. They can't remember where. And he says he didn't give her many details. And then he says he also might have told his friend Chris about it. The one thing that's interesting is that in Jay's interview, he doesn't confirm anything Jen said that she actually experienced. Almost like he didn't know she said that stuff. He never mentioned Jen picking him up. He never mentioned anything about wiping prints off of shovels, none of that. From my point of view, this interview seems like Jay just has too much to keep track of. It's my belief that he told Jen a short version of the story to tell the police, so he has to remember that. But I think he also has the police in front of him who are making sure that he covers things that they need him to say, and in the process, he forgets all about what he told Jen. Whatever the reason, that's for you to decide. Jay does not corroborate Jen's account of that night in this interview. In fact, he completely contradicts it. Now, the last thing that I want to cover is another blatant example of Brett and Alice shifting the facts and lying about the record in order to get you to believe their theory. In an earlier episode, they themselves explained that 55 minutes passed between the beginning of Jay's unrecorded interview and when they turned the tape on. And that's exactly right, just shy of an hour. Jay is Mirandized for the unrecorded interview at 12.35, and the tape is turned on at 1.30 a.m., 55 minutes. But after they finish breaking down the recorded interview, they spend a long time telling you how it would have been impossible for Rita McGillivary to feed Jay this story during that small amount of time. And to help drive the point home, they changed the time. It's no longer 55 minutes, like they said themselves a few episodes ago. Now it's 30 to 45 minutes. I'm sure their excuse would be that in this interview, Ritz says that he talked to Jay before they turned the tape on for around 30 or 45 minutes. He does say that, but the times are stamped on the document. We don't have to use his approximation. The times are very clear. But Brett and Alice are trying to make their point. So it becomes 30 to 45 minutes. And then by the time they're done explaining all of this away to you, it becomes just 30 minutes. Trust me, we're the experts. 30 minutes is nothing. We do this all the time. There's no way they could have fed him a story in only 30 minutes. These are the things that you need to be paying attention to. They slip stuff like this in and slowly get you to question your own reality. Make sure that you're reading the case documents And don't be fooled by the sleight of hand. And with that, I'm going to wrap this one up. Next week, we're going to hear a completely different story when I cover Jay's second official recorded interview. (laughs) ¶¶ Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com, Design Created, manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McAlaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay wood and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories@truthandjusticepod.com. At you can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page for all of you tweeters out there you can connect with us on twitter at TruthJusticePod, pod and i can be found on social media at bob ruff truth however you do it stay engaged stay in touch but as for now i'm signing off i'm bob ruff and this has been truth and justice